going to be in Luke chapter 12 this morning. Luke chapter 12. If you have a Bible, open up to Luke 12. If you don't have one or didn't bring one, the folks walking down the aisles, they'd love to give you one. Just raise your hand. They'll give you a Bible. Uh, if you're unfamiliar, it's uh, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke is the third book in the New Testament. There's four Gospels. It's kind of like witnessing an accident and having four witnesses. So it's uh, written from four different angles and a chance to see the Lord's life on this earth uh, from four different perspectives. And we're going through Luke. Luke wasn't an eyewitness. He was writing on Peter's behalf, who was an eyewitness. Luke is a physician by trade. Um, and his insights are remarkable. And I've really enjoyed the study through the book of Luke. Now, we've been going through the book of Luke. Uh, last week, we did cover a portion that I'm going to be covering again this morning, but it ties in with the passage that I really want to focus on, and the two go hand in hand, um, and, uh, and I, I think it's timely for what we're facing now as a culture, um, and I'm, I, I was really encouraged by the passage. One last thing before we get into it, I had the privilege to attend uh, the charity, charity luncheon uh, for the Los Angeles Rams. And uh, what a great organization. We are blessed to have them in our community. I, I just want to say that because if you're not a football fan, I was a Charger fan my whole life. I've abandoned them for the Rams. <laughs> First of all, because I'm the mayor of the city and I want to make sure the Rams stay here. But more importantly, I just, what a top-notch organization. I had the chance to sit with two um, uh, rookies that uh, had been drafted, uh, offensive line, and uh, one was from Oklahoma State, the other was University of Oklahoma. Both just, they love the Lord, what a wonderful time having lunch with them. Uh, you know, I, I was asking them where they're living and one was staying with a friend and another got an apartment off of Teal Boulevard and I said, look, uh, save some money. I mean, you know, the football life is short. Um, if you, you wanna get connected with one of the families in the church, we'll put you up. And they're like, really? I'm like, yeah. I was like, so I gave my number and so get ready if you, we're gonna have a big football player staying at your house maybe. Single guys, just precious as can be, so. All right, uh, enough of that. So uh, we're gonna pick up this morning at verse 13. I'll read out loud if you follow along silently. So please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Now, uh, Jesus is with this crowd that is pressing in, and a couple folks have been trampled because the crowd's so large. And in the midst of it, uh, a man comes up to him and wants uh, Jesus to be an arbitrator uh, for an inheritance between him and his brother. And as a minister, I have fallen prey to that. People want to come to the church and use me as a referee why they hate each other and try to see who can get the most money. Uh, and Jesus is in the midst of this, and uh, it's interesting how he handles it, and I wish I had known this earlier. Um, so verse 13, I'll read out loud if you'll follow along silently. Then one from the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Now, the previous chapter was beware of hypocrisy. This one is beware of covetousness. And then we're going to see uh, another beware. This is it's a time where everyone should beware. Timely. Verse 16, uh, then Jesus spoke a parable to them. A parable is a story where he takes a heavenly truth, puts it alongside an earthly illustration, parallel lines alongside each other. So he tells this story so they get this heavenly truth. He spoke a parable to them saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielding plentifully 
And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns and build greater and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? And then the Lord gives a synopsis. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And then we get to this other exhortation, do not worry. Verse 22, Jesus said to his disciples, now he turns from the crowd and he turns to his disciples. So this message now that we're covering is only for Christians. So if you're not a Christian, I'm just kidding. Gosh, you guys are tough. Uh, He turns to his disciples and he says, therefore I say to you, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you'll put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Solomon was a king of Israel, wealthiest man who ever lived, lived in palatial palaces, so you know who it is. Even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have. Give alms. Alms is giving to the poor. Provide yourself money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you lead us into all truth. And as we cover these three bewares that you have seen fit to share with your disciples and the crowds, Lord, we're here with our hearts open to receive all you'd have for us. Lord, I thank you for assembling us this morning. And Lord, we're prepared to receive And so, God, we yield ourselves to you, and we thank you. Bless us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, grab a seat, relax. We briefly covered this parable of the rich fool last week as we were going through the study. And um, I find it fascinating that this is a whole issue on inheritance and this is about a man who has a lot, and the Lord says don't covet, and then it gets into the discussion of those who have given everything and are worried that they won't have anything left. So you got two contrasting. One is the disciples who have given everything to follow the Lord, and the other is a rich man who just wants to use the Lord as an arbitrator. And as this man approaches the Lord and says, divide my brother, uh, my, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me, the brother got everything, and he's saying, look, I need you to litigate for me and get me the portion I deserve of my family's estate. We don't know who the players are. We don't know why he didn't get what he thought he was deserving. And then Jesus said, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? In over 25 years of ministry, uh, I have seen a number of families divided over money. 
especially inheritance. Somebody dies and then the family just breaks down and everyone is going after what remains in the estate. One of the first times I was exposed to something like this personally and it challenged me and the Lord ministered to my heart, uh, the teacher in my life was my wife, Michelle. Her grandmother passed, a noble, lovely woman. And uh, when she died, uh, my mother-in-law decided to take the two daughters and the son, uh, which would be Michelle, her sister, and her brother, and give them the opportunity to take a piece of furniture one at a time. And uh, we, were, we were so poor we couldn't pay attention. Uh, I was in the throes of ministry. We were completely broke. And so it's my wife's turn to pick a piece in the house. And I'm, I'm looking at the silver set. I'm thinking jewelry boxes over there. What's behind door number two? I was really excited about, you know, something. And I watch my wife get up and she walks over and she takes a piece of broken Danish pottery of a windmill. And the windmill's broken. And she takes it off the shelf and she walks over and she sits down. What are you doing? <laughs> Honey, the silver's over here. I, I, I couldn't process that. What, why do you have that? And she said, well, this is what my grandmother used to let me play with when I'd come. I thought, okay, let's get that out of your system. You got another round. <laughs> and her sister goes and her brother goes, and I'm like, come on. They, they took some good things here. And she goes over and she... I'm, I'm not joking. She took plastic cups with felt golf tees on it. Uh, golfing, you know, like a, uh, never mind. I don't even know why I'm explaining it. <laughs> Worthless. And she brings these cups back. I said, what are you doing? She says, that's what we drink out of when we go and visit grandma. And as I'm sitting there watching her heart, I just thought, you know, Lord, that's life. Each of the things was not something that she wanted to carry through life as a burden, but as a memory of joy. There was no financial meaning to any of it, and I was humbled. When my parents passed, I was blessed that my three siblings and I, um, there was zero arguing over my parents' estate. My sister and I uh, both, you know, separated things that everyone wanted, and there was zero argument. If someone wanted it, we completely yielded and gave it to them. And there was a joy about it because my parents, through the entirety of their life, were amazingly generous. They never had a, a hold on anything. There was always somebody at our dinner table. There was always somebody living with us. My dad was always giving something away. He had a joke where he'd hold out his hand and his thumb, really weird, would bend way down. And he said, that is, when you hold up your hand, and I'd hold it up, and he says, well, yours goes down a little bit. You're somewhat generous. He said, I can't hold anything. It just pours right out. And I, I fixed my thumb as best, to, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but my dad was a very generous man, so was my mother. And I grew up that way. There is not a possession I have that if you asked me for it, I wouldn't give it to you, if it would be a blessing to you, if it would be a burden. And, and if you don't believe me, test me. And if you test me, you're greedy. So, but anyone who knows me knows that's the case. I, I, I have no interest in carrying things through life. It's just, you know, I, I think about how we have storage units for stuff that we no longer need, but we have to hang on to it. And we're just carting junk all over the place. 
And in life, uh, you see this man and he comes and he's, he's upset about an inheritance. And I don't care, you know, I've seen the strongest of Christians just destroy a family over something so stupid as money. And the Lord has no desire to be a referee or an arbitrator between these two. And neither do I as a minister. People come to me because they're not acting Christian and they want me to officiate their fight. I have no interest in that. Go get an attorney. It just, it, it's, there's no interest in that for me. And the Lord tells this story, but before he tells the story, he said, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. And that brings us to this word covetous. Verse 15, take heed, beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. I, trying to depict what coveting means, uh, I found an illustration I thought was kind of cool. Just let you ponder that for a little bit. Some of you still don't get what coveting means, so I'm gonna give you a definition. Having or showing a great desire to possess something belonging to someone else. Um, Had the chance to go to the Prager Gala. Um, Had a chance to to, um, meet Mike Rowe, Dirty Jobs. Best public speaker I've ever heard in my whole life. Uh, As they were going through the Prager University and talking about some things, I came to find out that over 200 videos have been um, censored from YouTube. And Prager, Dennis Prager, who's an Orthodox Jew, did uh, 10 videos on the Ten Commandments, of which five of the commandments have been censored from YouTube. I thought you guys would be more impressed. Did you get any coffee or anything this morning? I'm just wondering. So I took one of the censored videos, I snuck it, and I brought it to you. And this is Dennis Prager on uh, the commandment of thou shall not covet in case you don't know what coveting is, take a look at the video with Dennis Prager. In the Ten Commandments, Commandments 6, 7, 8, and 9 are the ones that prohibit acts of evil, murder, adultery, stealing, and perjury. And then there is one commandment that prohibits the thing that leads to murder, adultery, stealing, and perjury. Which one is it? It's the last of the ten. Do not covet anything that belongs to others, not their spouse, their house, their servants, their animals, or any of their property. In order to understand this commandment and its unique significance, the first thing to understand is that this is the only one of the Ten Commandments that legislates thought. All the other commandments legislate behavior. In fact, of the 613 laws in the five books of Moses, virtually none prohibit thought. Why then does the Ten Commandments include a law that prohibits a thought? Because it is coveting that so often leads to evil. Or to put it another way, coveting is what leads to violating the preceding four commandments, the ones against murder, adultery, stealing, and perjury. Think about it. Why do people do those things? In most instances, it's because they covet something that belongs to another person. Obviously, that is the reason people steal. Thieves covet their victim's property. But it is also the reason for many murders, and coveting is obviously the reason for adultery wanting the spouse of another person. 
As for perjury or bearing false witness in the language of the Ten Commandments, that is done in order to cover up all these other crimes that are caused by coveting. But in order to understand why coveting is the one thought that is prohibited in the Ten Commandments and one of the only thoughts prohibited in the entire Hebrew Bible, we need to understand what coveting means and, equally important, what it doesn't mean. To covet is much more than to want. The Hebrew verb, lachmod, means to want to the point of seeking to take away and own something that belongs to another person. Note that there are two operative elements here, seeking to own and belongs to another person. Seeking to own does not mean just envying, or in the case of your neighbor's spouse, just lusting after. Neither envy nor lust is prohibited in the Ten Commandments. Uncontrolled envy and lust can surely lead to bad things, and they can both be psychologically and emotionally destructive. But neither one is prohibited in the Ten Commandments. Why? Because neither is the same as coveting. It is coveting that almost inevitably leads to stealing, to adultery, and sometimes even to murder. Let me explain this in another way. The Tenth Commandment does not prohibit you from saying, wow, what a great house or car or spouse my neighbor has. I wish I had such a house or car or spouse. That may end up being destructive, but it may also end up being constructive. How? It may spur you to work harder and improve your life so that you can obtain a house or car or spouse like your neighbor's. It is when you want and seek to gain possession of the specific house, car, or spouse that belongs to another that evil ensues, and that is what the Tenth Commandment prohibits. Therefore, one of these Ten Commandments, these Ten Basic Rules of Life, must be that we simply cannot allow ourselves to covet what belongs to our neighbor. Whatever belongs to another person must be regarded as sacrosanct. We cannot seek to own anything that belongs to another, because only evil can come of it. I'm Dennis Prager. So, coveting, having or showing a great desire to possess something belonging to someone else. You know, this is a very popular concept um, in our culture today. And, and I don't want to alienate some folks because I, I truly believe with all my heart that the reason why they embrace this unknowingly is because their intentions are noble. And the people that embrace it unknowingly, strangely enough, are folks that are 30 and under. Um, one of the most popular candidates for president right now with that millennial group, 30 and under, 40 and under actually, one of the most popular candidates for president currently is Senator Bernie Sanders. And one of the reasons why he's so popular for this younger group of folks is because of quotes like this, which really resonate with them. The issue of wealth and income inequality is the great moral issue of our time. It is the great economic issue of our time, and it is the great political issue of our time. This man sees in America um, income inequality. 
And he appeals to younger people who see the wealth accumulated but see the massive problems and as they're young and visionary and wanting to make a difference in the world in which they're living, they, they want to find a solution to it. And they think, well, there's wealth over here and there's poverty here. Why don't we level that out a little bit and use the government to do this? And that's their mindset. I don't fault them for that. And I'll tell you why. Interestingly enough, according to a recent Reason Group survey, 53% of Americans under 30 view socialism favorably compared to less than a third of Americans over 30. Similarly, Gallup found that 69% of those under 30 said they would be willing to vote for a socialist presidential candidate. If the election were done today and the electorate were 30 and under, it's estimated that President Trump would only obtain 37 electoral college votes. This next generation completely looks at this as a way to remedy what they perceive as greed and avarice and zero attention towards those who are impoverished. And that's why the socialist movement in America is growing with younger folks. They look at that and they think this is the answer. We're straddled with debt, college debt. Why not give free health care? The government can do these things. And so this grows within this generation of young people. And that's why uh, uh, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez has such an enormous Twitter following and why they appeal to this younger generation is because they look at this idea of income inequality. But the problem is deeper. But before I get to it, look at this. This is from The Hollywood Reporter. When broken down by various demographics, millennials were the group that most often compared socialism and Bernie Sanders to Jesus Christ. And college graduates, non-Christians, and those who were never married weren't far behind. That's The Hollywood Reporter. A movie came out called The Young Messiah about Jesus Christ, and they wanted to figure out how to market it, and so they did polling to figure out how to reach the younger crowd, and they, they uh, enlisted Barna to do this, and this was the results. The poll sponsored by the makers of the film The Young Messiah found that more people thought Jesus would endorse government-enforced redistribution of wealth over capitalism, and that Democratic Socialist Bernie Sanders would be his presidential pick uh, over the other available options. Now this is in Christendom. So before you laugh, understand that there's a reason why millennials see this and why they're frustrated. And there is a movement afoot that's very popular in the seminaries and in youth ministries and in churches across America of this idea of what they call Christian socialism. And it's not a new idea, it's been around for decades. You can see this very old paper from 1912, and this is one of the symbols of today's uh, Christian socialists. But here's where it breaks down, according to scripture. Socialists want to distribute wealth to individuals according to their need and regardless of virtue. As Karl Marx famously said, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs, it takes me a nanosecond in a group of young people to describe socialism in such a way as they understand how it breaks down. If I were to take my wife and my son in the front here and pretend that they're students in a school and Michelle's getting an A and Michael's getting an F, 
and, and I say, uh, uh, from each according to their ability to each according to their need, he needs a better grade. So I'm gonna take two grades from Michelle, give her a C, and I'm gonna give two grades to Michael and give him a C, and now we're gonna have equal distribution. But the problem is, the problem is, output in socialist countries completely drops. Because the next time Michelle goes to study, she says, why bother? If I'm doing the work to get an A, I'm still gonna get a C, and if he gets two grades, why not just do what he's doing, and I'm gonna get a handout anyways? And as Margaret Thatcher said, socialism only works until you run out of the other person's money. And so what happens is productivity decreases. That's why you have a nation like Venezuela, which was the fourth greatest nation in the Western Hemisphere, is now 160-something in the world, and their people are starving. And that was democratic socialism, because we don't call it socialism in the United States. We call it democratic socialism. That's like taking a cow pie, which is socialism, and putting sprinkles on it and calling it democratic socialism. <laughs> it's still the same thing, and the idea is you're, you're doing a redistribution of wealth and you're dealing with, listen, I'm not dismissing the millennials. I actually commend them, and I'll tell you why in a moment. What you're doing is you're redistributing materialism. Now, the reason why the 10th commandment says thou shalt not covet and it's a thought is because it's connected to the spirit. So you can redistribute wealth but you can't change the heart of the human being. So even if you have, both of you have a C, you're still going to want something that they have. And, and that is ingrained in every human being. We're selfish. We're always going to look and want something that someone else has. And so from each according to his ability to each according to his need, it's fascinating that young people see this as a simple solution. But it's missing a key element, especially in regards to scripture. It's missing the fact that man is not a dichotomy. Man is a trichotomy, body, soul, and spirit. We have ingrained in us this connection with God. Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, said everyone is created with a God-shaped void. We don't have to say he exists. We can even deny his existence, but there are times in our life where we just know that we know that we know that we're accountable to a creator. And when we look at it as young people, and they embrace this concept of socialism, one of the reasons why they do it is because they see the abundance of wealth in the United States of America, and they see the poverty, and they're looking and saying, wait a minute, how do you fix this? And you have someone coming up and saying, you take from those who have and give to those who don't have, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. That's a solution. It's a solution, but it doesn't take into consideration the human heart which is deceitful above all else. You see, socialism contradicts Christianity, and I wanna to talk to the Christian youth. Socialism contradicts Christianity, and it also contradicts the 10th commandment. The worldview contradicts Christianity, which affirms the existence, yep, which, which affirms the existence of both a material and non-material world, and teaches that mankind's greatest problems are spiritual. The Bible says the cause of suffering is sin and salvation is found in the cross of Christ which liberates us from sin. You don't have to teach a child to say mine. Hello? We grow up with that. And it doesn't take long, you're already looking around the room going, where did they get that outfit? How come they can afford it? What do they do for a living? 
And that's ingrained in us. We're creatures that are separated from a God who gave us commandments that we would be able to dwell together. When we remove these things, we get ourselves in trouble. It's fascinating that in socialism, when it's applied, it ultimately results in communism. Communism is a further step from socialism. And in his introduction to the black book of communism, Crimes, Terror, Oppression, the Definitive Catalog of Marxist-Inspired Atrocities, editor Stéphane Courtois revealed that communism's 20th century death toll of 94 million people was far greater than that of any other political movement. I'm either going to take what you have or take your life. We're going to redistribute this. Again, to socialists, suffering is caused by the unequal distribution of stuff, things, material. And salvation is achieved by the redistribution of stuff. There's no acknowledgement of spiritual issues in socialism. There's just an assumption that if everyone is given equal stuff, all the problems in society will somehow dissolve. But as you can see by the simple illustration that I did here with my family, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Why would you, if you look at the 613 laws that deal with private property in the scriptures of the, of the, of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, you look at the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, when you dwell together and you create wealth, meaning two people have to benefit, as you start to do this in society, community, common unity, and you have a handshake and you can do business and you get to create wealth and then you're striving to do something else and you see someone else's success and it motivates you, and you, you have laws where you can't steal from each other, and that culture begins to flourish. That's why America, in the 6,000 years of recorded history, this little blip on the screen of 243 years under this Declaration of Independence that declared our creator inalienable rights, life, liberty, the pursuit of virtue or happiness, that we're allowed to pursue these things, and I asked people about the Constitution, how many, how many rights does it give us? The answer is none. It's designed to protect the rights given to us by God. This is why we study it. It's not because I, I, I'm political. It's because I want us to understand that the highest form of community is politics. We're learning how to dwell with each other. And so we establish these principles so that we don't murder and we don't steal and we don't covet. And so in this process, when you honor these laws given to us by God, these inalienable rights, there will be an abundance of possession. That's why in the 6,000 years of recorded history, there's never been a nation on the face of the earth that has accumulated more wealth, more patents, more Nobel Peace Prize winners, more symphonies than the United States of America. The wealth that has been created in 243 years in this nation and the results have been unprecedented in the history of the world. However, a nation that has created this unbelievable exponential wealth unlike any other nation, you combine all of Western Europe, it doesn't equal the wealth that America created. But not only have we created the greatest wealth, we've also created the greatest debt of any nation on the face of the earth because once the government realizes it gives you free stuff, it then can control. Promises you everything and a government that's big enough to give you everything you want is big enough to take everything you have. Tough crowd. And this worldview contradicts Christianity because mankind's greatest problem is spiritual. Spiritual. And that's why Jesus said to this man, take heed and beware of covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. You're borrowing money 
that you can't afford, to buy things you don't need, to impress people you don't know. And you're not happy. And there's never enough. And, you're, and, and, and because there's not enough, you're going to fight not just with your neighbor, you're going to take on your brother. In the church itself, it's this idea that I want what someone else has. And it leads to the other violations of those commandments. It's the only commandment that's a thought because in the heart of man is wickedness. Socialism doesn't address that. But let me say this in defense of the young people. And Jesus is defending the young people. He defends the young people in the next portion of scripture that I want to focus on. Because he gives the three warnings, no hypocrisy, no covetousness. But then he adds a third. He says in verse 22, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, the body's more than clothing. Don't worry. But these young people that have, been, that have grown up in this generation are witnessing an abundance of wealth. They've been helicopter parented. They've been given everything they want. And they look and they see abundance and then they see poverty. And they think to themselves, why can't we take some of that and give it here? And they see their mother and their father growing up with believing that the abundance of their possessions is what makes them special. And they live in the realm of status. The car you drive, the house in which you live, the neighborhood in which you live, the school in which you go. And they struggle over that. And they're young, and they're impressionable, and along comes someone is from each according to his ability to each according to their need, and they say this is a solution that I'm not hearing in the church. And so they look at their parents and they see people who are worried about their possessions. You see, the idea of giving is only combated by the fear of losing. Seneca who, oh did I read that already? Sorry. Seneca who was uh, not a Christian He was Roman, and he wrote, the highest wealth is the absence of greed. And we say, well, I'm not greedy. And the Lord did address that in the parable of the rich young ruler, but he also combines two, and this is where the room will come together. Greed can never get enough, and worry is afraid it will never have enough. Let me repeat that. Greed can never get enough, and worry is afraid it will never have enough. The reason why people don't give, the reason why people don't give is because they're afraid they won't have enough. The reason why people get greedy is because we're we're a bottomless pit. Things will never make us happy. You lay awake worrying. And the idea is you go through these struggles in life. You think to yourself, 
If I have to cheat a little or lie a little or fudge a little to get more money, I'll do it because it's all about me and supplying my needs and that's why so many families go to war about inheritance like you saw in this parable. And and Jesus identified this problem that we're all tempted by and that's called greed. He prescribed a solution to greed and that was faith. We're gonna see that momentarily. The cure to greed is for us to realize it's all about God supplying all of our needs. I've seen it in Christendom. We are really kumbaya and connected until somebody takes our corner on the market of Christendom. And then we get really, really tight and stingy and that whole brotherly love thing goes away. Christendom's profitable. The music industry's profitable. Church is profitable. You open up a church down the street and you lose some congregants, you watch as pastors get a little concerned. I've never asked you to come and I'll never ask you to leave. And I've never asked you for a dime and I never will. But the beauty of it, what the Lord does, is he takes a look at this this passage and he addresses the concern of anxiousness and worry. Anxious. Worrying, that means experiencing worry, unease, or nervousness, typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. It's driven by fear. And faith and fear can't work together. God said he hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. And then it comes to this place in the passage of Scripture where the Lord says to his disciples, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, and what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. You see, Jesus points out that life is not simply material but spiritual, and to worry is to not trust God. Jesus says in this passage, consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? I live just a stone's throw over there, and I hate these creatures. Honestly, I think they're the Newberry Park mascot bird. They're like flying rats to me. And every Tuesday, or Monday, trash day, these things hover, and they're pooping all over our driveway, they're everywhere, and the guy across the street feeds them, and they're multiplying, and, and if anyone's trash can is remotely open, they figure out how to open that thing. They're smart as a whip, they just tear through the bags, they leave junk everywhere, and they just sit up there and look at you. <laughs> and I live in an HOA that doesn't allow BB guns. But I notice these things as I'm going to work, and they're up there with bellies that are full, and I'm upset with them, and I have to pick up their trash, and I got to get to work, and I got an appointment, and I'm worrying about things. And my and and the Lord just reminds me. He goes. Do those bug you immensely, yes? Do they look worried like you? No? They're annoying, but they don't look worried. They don't have any storehouses. They're not up there going, where are we gonna get our next meal? God provides for them, he ministers to them, he takes care of them, and the Lord is just simply saying to us, you're far more valuable to me than those birds. And as you, you consider this, We get to a place where we worry about our possessions. We worry about if we're gonna have enough. 
I love this illustration, and it deals with being tempted by worry and being tempted by greed. And, and the solution, obviously, if you think about it, if money controls you, give it away. Got real quiet. Here's why God gives us a tithing principle. I don't care whether you tithe or you don't tithe. I don't care whether you give to the church or you don't give to the church. I really don't. I've never asked for your money and I never will. Never. The tithe is not for the church. And the minute you start making it about the church, you're in trouble. The tithe is for you. The tithe is the ability to release your fear of money. What other people on the face of the earth take 10% of their income and give it to an invisible God? And what it does is it releases you to just say, this doesn't control me. I serve the Lord. He gets the first fruit of my life. People say, well, that's an Old Testament process. Okay. But it worked then. Wealth is not a bad thing. But being possessed by your wealth is. The main problem with greed is that it makes us worship our possessions. And this is Dr. Carl Menninger. He was once asked, he once asked a very wealthy patient. He was a psychiatrist. He said, what on earth are you going to do with all of your money? The patient replied a bit reluctantly, just worry about it, I suppose. Menninger went on, do you get that much pleasure out of worrying about it? No, replied the patient, but I get such terror when I think of giving some of it to somebody else. And Menninger pointed out, notice the power that money had over this wealthy man. He had more money than he knew what to do with, but what did he do with it? He worried. His major terror was the idea that someone else might get away with what he had. Politically, the older folks in the room despise some of these candidates because of their audacity. How dare you think of taking what's mine? lay awake at night worrying about that. And young people see the kung, kung fu grip on that as they see poverty around. And then the worry feeds and the nation divides. And the Lord says in verse 25, and which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? And he's talking about these birds and the Lord says, who of you by worrying can add one cubit to your stature? I was always thinking stature, cubit, what's a cubit? I answered it for you here. It's the distance between your elbow to your middle, the tip of your middle finger, it's about 18 inches. And I've been alive 55 years, I've worried my fair share and I haven't grown 18 inches as a result. Some folks in the room have actually shrunk because you carry that burden of worry. You look at some of the wealthiest men in the world and their faces look like they've just been soaked in formaldehyde. Just laying awake and your portfolio's on the ceiling and you're just trying to figure out a, how to beat California's taxes and just worrying and scared. And the Lord looks, and you want to talk about an oppressive regime. Everyone that he was speaking to, you think the tax rate in California's high, the, the people he was speaking to in this Roman world, they were just getting milked. Milked by the temple, milked by the Romans, milked by the tax, everybody took a, took a shot at them. 
And he turns and he probably pointed to a field in the springtime as they were heading to Jerusalem in this trek. And he says to them, in relation, he says, Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And this is a picture I found of Solomon, the richest man who ever lived, and this is kind of a picture of the opulence. And, and really what the Lord is saying is all of you know and you've heard of Solomon and the lilies, they, he had to strive for this. He had to fight battles to re, uh, retain this. And then people say all the time, I'm a self-made man, I'm a self-made woman, and I, I think to myself, what part of yourself did you make? You were fearfully and wonderfully made, knitted together in your mother's womb. No, I worked hard. I had three jobs and I did. Yes, you did. Great. But who gave you the ability to do that? Because if it's mine, 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 like Daffy Duck, you're living in a world of fear and greed and your possessions possess you. And, and that just, just freezes you. And I, I think that the Lord says to us, that the answer is to give it away. I know that's a bit frightening, but before people leave, let me just do this. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things, but seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. He just says, look, I'm, I'm talking to the disciples. We already did the parable for the crowds. I'm talking to those who profess the name of Christ that have a relationship with, with the Father. I wanna talk to you, God says. And he looks at them and he states after the illustration of the lilies and the ravens, he says, for all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your heavenly Father knows you need these things, but you guys are different. Seek the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. If we're being put on trial for being worldly, oh no, let's just say if we're being put on trial for being a Christian, I don't know, at times there's enough evidence to convict us. We worry about the same things that those who don't profess a relationship with God worry about. We're just as fearful about the same things that the world is fearful of. Our kids watch that, things are caught, not taught. And they're growing up in a world and they're seeing disparity and they're, they're struggling and they're seeing an amassing of wealth and, and a running after you know, material possessions and, 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 and poverty. And they're, they're looking at it and they're, they're trying to marry these two and embrace a faith of their parents. And along comes someone who says socialism, which is void of a spiritual dimension, but they turn to the church for an answer. And God is just simply saying, the nations run after that, you're different. Your whole calling is not the pile of dirt that you amass at the end of your life. Your calling, as he says here, sell what you have and give alms. That's charity. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. What he says is, you're on this earth to build a bank account in heaven. And the only thing going to heaven is people. You're not taking any of this with you. I get a kick out of people who say, I'm gonna leave it when I die. You don't leave anything when you die. You're dead. You, you just, 
You just died with possession of it. And now you don't have possession of it. Well, I put it in my will. That's only dependent on the community in which they would honor laws ordained by God that you don't covet and steal and they would honor those laws that are established of the protection of private property. But you never invested in that in your life. You never poured into your community and you're wondering why everyone in the community is greedy and why the minute you die, every one of your family members is gonna fight over it. And they're just waiting for you for your ticker to stop. And they can't wait to get their hands on it because they're just as greedy and as, and as stingy and as coveting as you. And then you go, <laughs> and you release your kung fu grip. And now you don't have control over it. And you came into the world naked and you're leaving naked. And you'll be washed on the shores of glory and you'll say, where's my bank account? And God says, the only thing going to heaven is people. People. Investing your lives in them. Listen, I'm not saying wealth is bad. Every one of the patriarchs was wealthy. I'm not saying having nice things is bad. I'm just saying you're either going to practice Christianity or the next generation is going to embrace socialism and just take what you have. I'm losing a lot of friends here today. God wants us to release our lives to him. That's why he says, this is a secret, he says, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. It's a challenge for all of us, nobody more than me. Where your treasure is is where your heart is also. Store your treasures in heaven where moth and rust will not destroy, thieves will not break in and steal. Operate in such a capacity that the thing you're storing in heaven is the opportunity to reach lives. Live in such a way. And, and one of the greatest things I want to do is to instill in my children that this kingdom principle of how I live is not about things. My kids know I could give a flip about money. They've witnessed with their mom and dad complete generosity. Almost to the point where they think the world works that way. And I've got work to do there. But this young generation has an entitlement in some capacity, and, and part of it is, similar to what Winston Churchill said, he said, make a living by what, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. You know, the ravens still work. They dig in those trash cans. God wants us to work. That's what the commandments are. He says if man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. You're supposed to create and you're supposed to be a blessing to a community and you're supposed to operate in the context of honesty and you're to do these things. And when you do them, you're gonna have the ability to bless more people. And capitalism is that idea that, that if you're a farmer and I'm a baker and you've heard the story, you know, I sell you, I, I, I sell you my grain at a price the market will bear and then with the profit I make, I buy more fields and hire more workers, and then you bake the bread, and with the profit you make that the market can bear, you buy more ovens and hire more workers, and wealth is created when two people benefit. And community grows. But the minute you take away from each according to his ability to each according to his need, all we're going to do is be entitled and want. And then everything is destroyed. We are called to serve one another. And when you accumulate wealth, it's not so that you can flaunt it, Enjoy life, but the idea is remember what the bank account's gonna say. You know, I, I was so moved by my mom and dad 
They're good people. They died with nothing, no debt, but no inheritance. They gave me character. And I'm doing it to the best of my ability to instill it in the lives of my children. And the times I struggle the most, I just watch it in the character of my wife when she goes and takes a broken piece of Danish pottery and plastic cups when she could have gotten a stinking silver set. I think if we're in a struggle in this nation right now, it's a disparity between abundance and responsibility. We're either going to yield our heart and trust God and willingly give, or the next generation is gonna rise up and say, your Christianity doesn't make sense. That's why seminaries are embracing this. And we as the older folks have to set an example for these folks coming up. Socialism's not the answer. Generosity is. But it has to be a willingness of our heart. And the reason why we don't want to be generous is because we're afraid. And the Lord says, don't worry. I got you. The happiest times in our life for Michelle and I were when we were living in Section 8 housing. We didn't have any money. We were living on Second Harvest Food Bank food. Michael never went through this, but Molly and Kelly did, and so did Daniel for a season. And we laughed. We had a car with over 200,000 miles on it. It was some of the most precious times of our life. And whether we're eating macaroni and cheese out of a box that's five months old or we're eating at Mastro's, I'll tell you what was really special is in the process of it, there's nothing that you can take from me that I'm gonna miss. The one thing I want more than anything else is that my family walks with God. And my kids have witnessed that every day of their life. And I would just encourage us just to, this week, I want you to think about something. What is it that you can't let go of? What possession do you have that possesses you? Don't answer out loud, just think about it. Pray about it. And ask the Lord to release that. And he will. You know why? Because nobody's better at giving than God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The father gave his son. He gave everything. He didn't give this, this, this. He gave this. Christ gave it all. He bled every drop poured it out on Calvary. He took every lashing, every nail, crown of thorns, and every beating to die in our place that we'd be reconciled to the Father so that we could say, Papa, Abba, Father, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. He holds the heavens in the span of his hand. He loves you with an everlasting love. He calls you his child. I provide for my, my kids as an earthly father with an evil heart how much more will your heavenly Father provide for you? Quit worrying about it. He gave everything. And he wants us to be his kids and reflect that to a world that thinks socialism's the answer. When really what it is, is hearts moved by a giving God.